0: Hey, everyone. Welcome in to another daily editorial here on the KE Report. This is going to be a bit of a different daily editorial because when I was at some of the conferences in Vancouver, I spent some time with a different type of company, one that provides services to the mining sector. In all fairness, they provide some services to a wide range of sectors. I want to introduce to all of you Pynchon. Now, it is a Canadian Based company. I am chatting with Byron O'Connor. He is the VP of mining at Pynchon. So, Byron, we're going to try to take an investment angle into this in terms of how investors should look at environmental work, permitting work, to make sure there are no red flags in some of their investments. But first and foremost, because Pinchin comes at it from consulting with companies, working with companies through economic studies, through permitting, take us through what Pynchon exactly does in the mining sector please
1: sure thanks Corey so pension um, provides a wide range of environmental and hazardous materials assessment services to the mining sector these will range from mid-stage exploration projects right through to full-scale development operations we provide services to some pretty major companies in the uh, base metal space uh, companies like Valet and Glencore uh, we're working for Newmont in, uh, in the gold sector as well. Uh, we're very active in the Labrador trough with Rio Tinto. And in Saskatchewan with uh, potash companies, including Nutrien. Uh, we also provide quite a few environmental services and has material services to juniors and sort of mid-tier producers as well across the, across the country.
0: Okay, so from the investment side of things, for investors out there, most can look at economic studies and use those at least as a base or a starting point to say what sort of environmental work is going on here? What should they be looking out for in terms of what Pynchon does to contribute to these studies? Where can you guide us for red flags or keys to watch out for?
1: Sure. In addition to um, the standard baseline studies that we do, we'll, we'll get involved with a, with a junior company, for example, or a mid-tier company doing uh, baseline groundwater studies, surface water studies, aquatic and terrestrial and all those studies feed into um, a pre or a feasibility study. The information that's provided in those studies will, will then determine what the in potential environmental impact could be from the particular project. So um, there's that component. We, uh, we provide compliance monitoring services as well and then we also make uh, contributions to the environmental component of feasibility studies and pre-feasibility studies. So I think that's mainly what you're referring to. So for example, if we're doing baseline studies, we're, we're going in and we're, we're looking at what the groundwater conditions are at this project, we're looking at the surface water conditions, we're looking at whether or not there may be species at risk there, whether there could be some landforms that could be sensitive as well, and then evaluating that against what the project is gonna look like. So for example, whether it's gonna be open pit or underground, what the uh, groundwater conditions could be, and then determining basically what the net environmental effects could be from the project.
0: Now, again, for investors, this sort of information almost comes too late for them if there is an issue because, well, the government might shut them down or the company is forced to release some news release that says some of our recent data might not be accurate. What can you tell investors to look for? How can they get ahead of any issues that might arise?
1: Sure, so when you look through a, a pre-feasibility study and a feasibility study, the the environmental chapters are usually focused on the baseline studies that have been done. And there's gonna be some costing associated with, with what the environmental controls are gonna to have to be. How is water gonna be managed? Is there gonna be a water treatment system in place? And then the costing is done associated with that. Oftentimes, the devil's in the details with respect to particularly water management. Sometimes there's not a lot of detail there, and it ha- you have a hard time comparing the level of detail in the body of the report with the costing that's been done. So sometimes it, it, it takes kind of a trained eye to, to tease out some of the information that's in there and whether there's the right level of detail has been done at the study stage to reach the conclusions that have been reached with respect to potential impacts that the uh, environmental controls are going to have on the schedule of the project and the costing of the project.
0: Now, are there any questions that investors could ask management to get some insights on how the work is being done or if there could be any issues or red flags?
1: Yeah, definitely. We, we do a lot of consultation, um, community consultation with, uh, with companies when we're going through the project. We'll often find, um, particularly with First Nation communities, at the beginning of the project, there tends not to be a lot of engagement, usually because there's not a lot of details yet. So some companies, I think, get lulled into a false sense of security, thinking, you know what, the community doesn't seem to be that interested. We may have a bit of a free free ride here. And then you carry on and you're getting more details and you go to another meeting and there's a great deal of interest because now you have details. Now people are starting to get a better sense of what the environmental impacts could be. So it's important not to get blindsided. So I think asking asking company managers or, um, um, you know, uh, executives, you know, what level of consultation have you had? What kind of participation have you had? And if it's low, why has it been so low? And if it has been highly engaged, then what types of questions are they asking about the environment? You know, is there any deal breakers here? If, uh, for example, it's going to be an open pit mine, it's a shallow deposit. And the deposit extends out underneath the lake and the only way to make the project economical is to drain the lake that may be a deal breaker for that community
0: now what about different deposit types though because different considerations go into different deposit types so how can investors in a way almost simplify depending on the deposit type what to focus on
1: sure so i mean if you have a base metals deposit for example then it's likely there are going to be sulfides present that's just the nature of the geology so if you have sulfites present, then there's a potential you're going to have what we call acid rock drainage, which is the single biggest environmental problem associated with base metals mines. It creates potentially long-term water management problems. Uh, you have to manage the waste rock differently. The tailings are going to be acidic. So if it's that type of a very large deposit and it's in, in an environment that has a lot of surface water nearby, there are going to have to be a lot of environmental controls in place. So it's going to, be, it's going to drive up the price of the project. Conversely, if you're looking at, say, a a lithium deposit and you have um, a pegmatite, mostly quartz, mostly feldspar, it's got some spodumene in it and that's what you're looking for, but the pegmatite is placed into a host rock. So when you're mining that deposit, you're taking out the pegmatite, you're extracting the spodumene, you end up with tailings that's basically inert, it's quartz for the most part. It's not going to be acidic, you're not going to have a water quality problem. But if the pegmatites are hosted by, say, a sediment that has disseminated sulfides in it, those sulfides can potentially create acid rock drainage conditions, which would mean that your waste rock management may be a little more complicated than, than not. If you have a pegmatite deposited into a host rock that's barren of sulfides, you're golden. You shouldn't have any water quality issues, and uh, that's probably the best scenario you could look for.
0: What about on precious metals, gold-focused projects, both open pit and underground?
1: Yeah, so gold's interesting because you'll often have sulfides present as well. But if you're going underground, then the amount of waste rock you tend to generate is smaller. You're, you know, you're chasing uh, vein-hosted gold, for example. So you're dealing with quartz there as well. There may be some carbonates in there too that provide neutralization potential to offset the, the acidity. And everything's underground, so you're having less impact on water. Because you're, you're doing underground dewatering, you're not doing big footprint open-pit dewatering. So the water management problems are, are less. If you're open-pit, often large open-pit gold mines are low-grade and hopefully low sulfides as well. Typically, they're going to have a bigger environmental footprint. The other thing with gold, though, is often you'll often have arsenopyrite present. So it's, a, it's an ars- arsenic uh, sulfide. Most sulfides uh, leach under uh, low pH conditions. So what happens when acid's being generated is you're driving down the pH of the water. That liberates the metals and you get higher concentrations of metals than in the water. Arsenic doesn't behave like that. It actually leaches under neutral conditions. So with a gold deposit, we're normally looking at potential arsenic there as well through the arsenopyrite just to see if that could be a potential problem.
0: Now, for investors that are looking at companies, say, pre-development or in development, pre-production, let's just say, and they know they need to get permits, they need to keep doing environmental work, this stuff is ongoing. When companies set out timelines and there might be delays in those timelines, how concerning should that be?
1: My experience, there are always going to be delays. I think companies as good-hearted as we all are when we're setting schedules, we, we think we're adding some contingency in, but I think we always never had enough contingency and unfortunately things come up. Um, you know, when we're dealing with regulatory agencies, you really cannot control all of that process because you, you can try to push them on their responses and their reviews, but you're basically working to their timeline for the most part. So I, I tend to always look at schedules with uh, some scrutiny. And, um, you know, if I'm if I'm trying to make a decision on where I think this project is going to go, I I tend to add a little bit of buffer into it myself.
0: All right. One more just on the economic study side of things. When people see costs that go into building out a mine, even the sustaining capital, there is that environmental line. How do you go about diving into that number?
1: Yeah, it's sometimes it's just a line item in a big cost sheet. If there's not much detail associated with that costing, then you've got to go back and look at the studies that were done, which are going to be buried within the the, the body of the report. So you have to really look at, okay, what sort of baseline studies did they do? How detailed were they? Who did them? You know, were the consultants that were involved um, have have a good pedigree and a lot of experience and were following industry standard practices? Do the outcomes of the studies make sense based on what the project looks like? So again, as I talked about uh, an open pit mine that's near a river, you know, if the if the conclusion of the groundwater study was that we have to dewater this pit that's very close to this river, but there's not going to be any effect on the river, I would tend to scrutinize that. So how did they get to that point? You know, was there adequate groundwater modeling done, for example? And I think once you get a picture then of the technical work that was done and the outcomes, you can go back and look at the cost table and say, at the very least, I think I need I think I need more detail before I can make a decision on whether this is a real number or not. So, Byron, I'm going to have you back on the show
0: more to talk more about what investors can do, even what companies have to do on permitting, environmental, all this work that Pynchon does as a company to filter in. But for larger investors, ones that want maybe another assessment of certain reports, is that also something that Pynchon does?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if if, you you have an institutional investor, an individual investor that's looking at making an investment decision on a company and they're not really comfortable with the environmental side of things or they have some questions, yeah, for sure. You know, if you, if you want to have a bit of an insurance policy and have a, a second look at something, uh, we could certainly provide that service. We do these sort of studies all the time, so we know what to look for. So I, th- I think that's just a good insurance policy. If, you, if you've got some concerns, you know, maybe there are some red flags buried in there that, uh, that we can find.
0: Okay, Byron, thank you very much. Very interesting chatting with you at the conference and learning a bit more about even what goes into these studies too. And as I said, for everyone listening, if you want more information, if you have any questions on what you should be looking for within economic studies, even within companies that you're invested in, send me your questions. I'll get Byron back on the show and we'll continue to discuss this for you investors and also for some of the companies out there trying to navigate that landscape. So Byron, Again, thank you very much for your time. Great to meet you at the conference.
1: Thank you, Corey. Good to meet you.